Good evening. It is good to see each of you. It is good to be together, to worship God, and to study from His Word as we worship. If you will, we won't have slides. If you will, be opening to 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. We'll be studying a little bit out of the 4th chapter, leading into the 5th chapter. And I believe that's about 1,026 or 27 in the Bible that's in your pew, if you want to study along and borrow that. Uh, we are... Glad to be able to tell you that if you need something to hand to individuals as you invite them to Vacation Bible School, the who, what, when, and where, there are postcards and information center. And uh, keep in mind that that's just a week from tomorrow. So this is the week to get really, really serious, if you haven't already, about inviting. And, and I would hope that all of us would invite three, four, five, six kids. Uh, be thinking about who lives around you. Think about individuals that, that you know their parents or you know the child themselves and uh, uh, whether it's young ones all the way up to uh, through high school, uh, we have a wonderful place for them in Vacation Bible School. So be sure and pick up uh, those postcards if that would be a benefit to you. And also keep driving them to the website at mountainjuliet.org. Uh, to be able to register so that we can be best prepared for them. Also, we want to thank Tim uh, for a tremendous job of preaching last Sunday. Uh, he did a great job, and he does a great job in everything that he does, and we're thankful for him and for what he does, and especially with all that's coming up, also with Vacation Bible School. And uh, we had a tremendous chisel outing. Uh, your young men are tremendous young men. We had a great 49 hours together, and uh, just a lot could be said about that, but time just will not permit it. Also, this morning, uh, we mentioned in the good news section uh, individuals that are on mission trips. I understand that also Chandra Reed is also on that trip in Honduras, and I'm sure we'll find out others that are probably on mission trips. If you'll keep us posted, we'd like to keep the congregation abreast of that so we all can be praying about that. It is wonderful to be a part of a congregation where the mindset is the feeling of responsibility that we must take the gospel to the world about us. And isn't that wonderful that it's beginning at home with 22 baptisms over the last few days. And uh, it's amazing what God can do. Uh, we're simply tools. We simply do our part. Uh, we water and uh, plant and we allow God to give the increase. When I was getting ready uh, to go and speak on Thursday night at camp just a few weeks ago, I was visiting with my son, uh, Colton, and telling him about what I was studying. And, and Colton said, Dad, I read, and I forget now if he said I was listening to something or if he read something. And uh, he said, but I think he said I read something. I read something the other day that a fellow was speaking on, and he said it was, it was really powerful about that. And he told me some about what the, the, the gentleman had said in his lesson. But then he said, this was the part that really made you think. The fellow said thinking about Satan working against us. And he said, what can you do to a group of people who are not afraid of death? What can you do to a group of people who are not afraid of death? If you're not afraid, how is Satan going to drive you away? If you can honestly say, Satan, it doesn't matter what you do to me, I'm not leaving the Lord. It doesn't matter what you do, I'm not going to stop telling others about Jesus. The lack of fear is what causes most people to have great success. Let me illustrate it in a physical way and then let's go back and let's think about it in a much more important way spiritually. You know, I, I grew up riding motocross dirt bikes. And one of my friends at the same age, we went through elementary all the way through high school together. He was always a head and shoulders and maybe a couple head and shoulders, uh, not in stature, but in his ability to ride above the rest of us. 
And so in about second grade, Kawasaki began to sponsor him. And they gave him all his equipment, his practice bikes, his racing bikes, his trailers, uh, everything that he wanted, they provided it for him. And he was ranked in the nation most of the time growing up. His father wouldn't let him come ride with us. Uh, I guess he thought we would kind of ruin his son. Uh, we just weren't of the level to compete. But every now and then, he would sneak off and he would come and he would ride on our track. And I remember one particular day we were riding together and he was going to pass somebody on the outside that was not normally a place that you would pass on this particular jump and it had a lip on it and it kicked the rear tire out. Now he was probably jumping a distance already from here to room 100 AB, if you can picture that in the air. And so he's probably, he's probably getting close to the height of the ceiling right there in the air, but when it kicked his back tire out, He's now coming down. It's just a big rainbow, which you never want to do. And, and so we're watching him, and we're like, wow, this is bad. He comes down, still hanging onto the bike on the front forks. And, uh, and then the bike and him just bounce and begin to roll. Well, he separated from the bike, and the bike and he ended up probably at least 100 feet away from each other. We thought he was dead. And we rushed up to him and he's getting up and he's cleaning himself off and, and, and we said, what do you need? He said, um, I broke my collarbone. If you can, help me pick my bike up. And so we helped him pick his bike up and said, well, do you want us to take you to the mercy room? He said, no. He said, if you'll just help me load the bike, I'm going to go home, get the bike put up. And when parents come in, we'll go to the mercy room and we'll take care of that a little bit later on. Didn't phase him. Why do you think he was a professional? He was a professional rider. He was that quality because he wasn't afraid to wreck. He wasn't afraid to get hurt. Within a matter of a few weeks, as soon as his collarbone was mended, he was out riding as hard as he had ever ridden. Listen, what can you do to people who are not afraid of death? Who reaches out to their co-workers? If we, if we just went around this room and we said, who reaches their peers the most with the gospel? I don't know which individual it would be, but I know this. It's going to be the one that's not afraid of rejection. Who is it that they remain strong despite what is going on around them? It's the one that's not afraid of pain and suffering. Tonight, I want us to look at a passage that really it is set up in 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, but then he gives great reason for the motivation of it in the fifth chapter. When we look at Paul and we say, Paul, how did you do so much in mission work? How is it that you were able to reach so many for Christ? Now, we know that Paul did a lot of things right, but one of the things that Paul did right was Paul was not afraid to hear no. He wasn't afraid to go into a city and preach the gospel and be persecuted. He wasn't afraid to be driven out. <clears throat> he wasn't afraid to suffer. And so when we go to 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, Look, if you will, at the beginning of a bookend here. Look at how this verse ends in verse 1. Do not lose heart. Look at this. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. How different would the church be if no one ever fell away? Can you imagine if everybody that had been baptized into Christ and that had been a part of this congregation over the last 10 years, can you imagine if they were here tonight? We wouldn't hold them in two services. Why is it 
that so many lose heart? Why is it that so many, they start out strong, they're on fire, and then later on, they cannot be found? Well, notice the close of that bookend in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And then he talks about, even though the outward man is perishing, the inward is being renewed day by day. In between there, not every verse, but many of the verses, he was talking about pain and how in the midst of pain or persecution, especially if you glance over verse 8 and 9, very strong words about being persecuted, about being uh, crushed and about going through difficult times and being struck down. But yet each time he would not give up. In other words, he's saying over and over, I'm not going to lose heart. And then notice what he says in 17 to bring it all into perspective. Look at 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, see now we're going to talk about faith, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are seen are, are not seen are eternal. But go back to verse 17. He looks at all of the suffering and the pain that he went through on this earth and he said, just light affliction. If some of us would have had the wreck that I was telling you about a while ago, just the fear alone would have put us in the hospital. And instead, that young man who was not afraid, he got up and dusted himself off and just held his right arm a little bit and he went on his way. You say, wow. I don't know if you call that courage or strength, whatever you want to call it. All right, why am I saying that? If you and I went through what Paul went through, most of us would not call it light affliction. Paul went through horrific persecution. But when he describes it, he says, just light affliction. Light affliction compared to the glory that waits on the other side. You see, what he's doing in this verse is he's setting it up to say, this is how you make it. Things on this earth don't scare you when you realize that you're living for eternity. You're not afraid of the rejection. You're not afraid of the persecution. You're not afraid to stand for the Lord no matter what the cost as long as you realize I'm doing it for the glory that awaits on the other side. So how do we do this? Let's look at the first few verses heavily and then we might mention just a few things out of the next few verses and the lesson is yours. So when we go to the fifth chapter, keep in mind, man put in the chapter breaks. Paul's just writing right on here. He's not changing the topic, but he is going to say the way we view our soul living in this body and the way we view this body has a great impact whether or not we'll be faithful through the times of suffering. Look at the fifth chapter in verse one. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Do you see what he's doing there? He says, I want to talk to you about your body because I don't want you to lose heart. And if you see your body as a permanent fixture, you're going to lose heart and you're going to become afraid of everything. But he says, if you see your body as something that's temporary and it's the soul that one day is going to be given another building made with God that's going to be eternal. In other words, he says, right now, let's call this body a tent and let this body one day be dissolved. And that soul is just going to move from that body over into another house that God makes. And this house is going to be eternal. 
So now let's go to verse 2. He's back to this tent again. For in this we groan. As long as we're in this body, there are going to be difficult times. There are going to be times of pain. There are going to be times that if we react based upon nature, it's probably going to turn us away from our faith. Our natural tendency, for example, if you put your hand on a hot eye, your natural tendency is that burns, I have to get away from it. That's a healthy tendency. But here's where we make a mistake. I'm living the Christian life. Someone mocks me and that hurts. That hurts to be mocked and laughed at. And so then if we let the natural tendency kick in, the natural tendency is that hurts. Whatever it is that's causing that pain, oh, it's living the Christian life. And people are mocking me. And so I've got I've to back away from that. Just like a hand on a hot stove, it hurts. I've got to get away. I'm living the Christian life. People are mocking me. I've got to get away. I tried to invite someone to the Lord and, and they made fun of me. I'm going to get away from that. I'm not ever going to invite anyone again. And he says, whoa, whoa, listen. As long as you're in this body, there's going to be groanings. There's going to be physical pain. There's going to be pain that's going to be because we age, but there's also going to be pain because people inflict pain upon us, persecution. And so what's interesting in verse 2 is he says, in this body we groan, but then he also says, but at the same time we're groaning, there is a spiritual yearning. Look again there in verse 2. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. That's the ticket. He says, okay, so right now you're groaning. Something is hurting you in this tent, in this physical body. Keep that earnest desire that says, I'm not going to lose heart. I'm going to be faithful. I'm looking forward to that day that I can take off this tent, this physical body, and I can be clothed with an eternal home that is not going to know that pain and that suffering. Verse 3, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now, if we looked in Revelation, the third chapter, those that were lukewarm, he said they were naked. Church of Laodicea. Why? Because they're not making preparations on this earth for that eternal home. And in that sense, they're found naked. And so he's saying, I don't want to be found naked. I want to know. I want to have faith. I want to have confidence. It's that earnest desire. I want to know that there is something waiting for me. This is light affliction compared to the glory that's coming. I want that glorious time. Verse 4. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened. He's just emphasizing the same thing he's been talking about. Not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Paul, what do you want? You're in this body and people are persecuting. You're in this body and you're going through shipwrecks. You're in this body and they're throwing you in jail. They're stoning you. They're beating you with rods. They're beating you with whips. Paul, what do you want? He says, I've accepted something. Paul, what have you accepted? As long as I'm in this tent, I'm going to go through a lot of pain. Paul, how do you make it? What keeps you from losing heart? And he says, I know what's waiting. I have this earnest desire that one day these marks that I have on my body, this physical body is going to be dissolved and God's going to give me an eternal body that's not going to know that pain and this is temporary, this is eternal. This is physical, 
This is spiritual. This is just light affliction. This is great weight of glory. That's how Paul says, you make it through the difficult times. You don't live for now, you live for then. Now, I've said this to you before, but since we're right here on this text, this is a beautiful, beautiful little brain teaser here, if you will. Thinking from a physical aspect, it doesn't make sense. Thinking from a spiritual aspect, it's beautiful, it's powerful. Did you notice the end of verse four? But further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. <clears throat> Secularly, worldly, fleshly thinking. We live life and death swallows up life. Okay, all of us can imagine, I mean, not just imagine, I mean, we know it. We see someone living their life and then if someone says, oh, they're not alive anymore, what that means is death swallowed their life. They're not alive anymore. That's not what he said there, was it? Look down again, what did he say there? Here, he switches it over and he says, life swallowed up death. That's the beauty and the power of Christianity. Paul says, listen, I'll go through whatever I have to. And somebody says, Paul, they're going to kill you. And you know what? If you said that, you'd be right. They were going to kill him. Eventually they did, 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. He said, Paul, you need to think about this. They're going to kill you. And he says, that's all right. I'm waiting for eternal life to swallow up death. We're so close. Just flip a few pages back in your Bible. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. You and I know these passages probably. We've referred to them many times. Look at verse 24. 1 Corinthians 15 and 24. Then comes the end. Talking about when Jesus comes again and he's going to deliver the kingdom to the Father. He'll put an end to all rule and all authority and all power for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And what is he going to put to death? Verse 26. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. When he comes back again, death is going to be destroyed. By whom? He's going to destroy death by the one who was resurrected from the dead. Jesus Christ, the resurrection, the empty tomb, all of that points to victory over death. The empty tomb says, death you will die. And when Jesus comes again, the resurrected one will put an end to death. The resurrected one is the one who gives eternal life. And so when Jesus comes again, eternal life is going to swallow up death. Paul says, think I'm afraid? I'm not afraid. Do whatever you have to do to this physical body because I'm only using it for a short time. You can persecute me. You can mock me. You can do whatever you want. I'm only in this body for a short time because this life is going to be swallowed up by death, but eternal life is going to swallow up death. And that's the power. Since we're there, we're still at 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go ahead and read verse 50 and a few verses following. 1 Corinthians 15 and 50. This is describing the second coming of Jesus and the transformation that we'll go to. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we're not all going to die. There will be people alive on this earth when Jesus comes again. But we shall all be changed, whether we're dead or whether we're living. When Jesus comes again, the flesh and blood, the tent that we're living in is no longer going to exist. When's this going to happen and how quickly will it happen? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, how quick can a little child's eye twinkle at Christmas time? When they come out and they see that gift they've been wanting and all of a sudden it goes from a sleepy eye to a twinkling eye, how quick does that happen? How quick is Jesus going to come again? How quickly are you and I going to be changed in a twinkling of the eye? The last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. Then when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Hades, where's your victory? The sting of the death is sin and the strength of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verse 5. The first four verses we've looked at, he's placed an emphasis on the body is only temporary. The battle has already been fought. Eternal life is going to swallow up death. Whose side are you going to stand on? Are you going to stand with Jesus and endure whatever lot of afflictions we have to? Whenever that is our heart, whenever that is our commitment, we will not lose heart. But notice verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. 2 Corinthians 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. In other words, it's earnest. He's earnest to us. Look at verse 6. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, that's in this tent, our soul in this tent, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. And he talks about confidence again in verse eight. For we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The second way he drives this home is to say, I'm confident of something. What are you confident of, Paul? I'm confident that the best thing for me is to be absent from this body and to be present with the Lord. And because I'm so confident of that, that's why I'm willing to walk by faith and not by sight. You see, when we walk by sight, we begin to believe that the temporal things are the most important. We begin to make fleshly decisions. We begin to think that we have got to protect this body. What if somebody laughs at us? What if somebody mocks us? What if somebody physically persecutes us? But when we realize, no, my confidence is not in temporal things. My confidence is in eternal things. So we walk by faith, not by sight. And so that leads us to the second coming of the Lord. Look, if you will, in verse 9, 10, 11, and we're closing the lesson here, but look at 9, 10, 11. Therefore, we make it our aim. In other words, if somebody said, hey, what's your ambition in life? What's your aim in life? Can you say, along with Paul, this is your ambition? We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Paul, what do you want? I want to please God. I want to please God. We know this also from Philippians 1 as well. I want to please God by the way I live. I want to please God by the way that I die. 
I know some in this room have thought about that because you've been in life and death situations. And I know others in this room are young enough that they haven't given a lot of thought to that. But listen, there is something powerful about watching faithful people die. Very powerful about watching faithful people die. Can you imagine being around Paul at the time that he is able to say, the time of my departure is at hand. And by the way, if you go back, I know that would be in the New Testament, which is Greek, but bear with me for just a moment. Do you know if you go to the Hebrew word for departure? The Hebrew word for departure means to pull up the tent pegs. Now you think what we've just been reading. Paul is saying, this body is just a tent. One of these days, I'm going to pull up the tent pegs. I'm not going to live in this body anymore. I'm going to depart. I am leaving this tent behind. I don't need it anymore. And Paul says, the time of my departure is at hand. And he goes on to talk about his, his faith and the race and the course that he's finished. And, and he's looking forward to it. He's not dreading it. Why? He says, I'm confident. I know that it's going to be better to be with the Lord than to be in this body. That's why I walk by faith. I don't walk by sight. I know that as long as I'm in this tent, there's groaning. I have this earnest desire. I want to be with the Lord. That's how he didn't lose heart. That's how he stayed on track. We're all, verse 10, going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to receive the things done in our body, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. Two things were said there. Paul said, I do everything in view of judgment day. I want to be well-pleasing to God. I want to be able to give an account and know that my sins have been forgiven. But he says, number two, it's almost as if he said, you want to know why I've devoted my life to mission work? He says, I know the terror of the Lord. What's it going to be like for people to hear, depart from me? And he says, I go and I persuade men because I don't want people to hear, depart from me. Tonight, I know a lesson like this kind of hits us at different places because we all perhaps are at different places in our spiritual maturation process. So I don't know where you are and I don't know how it hits you, but I want to challenge you wherever you are. I want to challenge you to be a person that says, I will never let fear stop me from doing what God's will for me in my life is. It doesn't matter what it costs physically. I'm going to always walk by faith and I'm not going to walk by sight. I have this earnest desire. I know that things are going to be better for me on the other side than here. And so at any moment, we're ready to pull up the tent pegs and we're ready to move from this body and go home with the Lord. This evening. I don't know how to ask it except simply to say, are you ready? Many of us have been camping and we know what it is to break down the camp and say, we're moving. If the Lord right now said, you're breaking down the camp, the tent pegs have been pulled, your soul is coming out of your body and you're going to stand before me right now. Right now, if you and I can say, I'm ready for that, 
we're ready to live and to stand courageously. But if we're not ready for that, that's why we struggle. That's why we find ourselves thinking we're on fire one day and we're not on fire at all the next day. So tonight, let's make sure that we all leave here tonight truly devoted to the Lord, no matter what the cost. If we can help you in any way, if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, if you're ready to, to be restored, if you don't even know exactly what you need, but you know you want help, let us know. We would love to help you in whatever way that we can. There's not anybody here perfect, but we're all serious about our mission. We're serious about our Lord. And we're serious that we want to spend an eternity with him.